Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and congratulations to Barry Hawkins who's won the European Masters. There are a few snooker players who divide opinion. Barry Hawkins is not one of them. You won't hear a bad word about him. Uh, everyone likes Barry and he's had a few near misses of course in recent times. I mean it's February 2017 was his last success in a ranking event. He lost a few finals. It's got to be said he'd lost them to big hitters. People like John Higgins, Mark Selby, Neil Robertson, Karen Wilson... Of course, he'd lost a world final to Ronnie O'Sullivan. So, you know, he'd been losing to, to big names. But the fact is, he'd been coming up short and it was frustrating for him. And most frustrating, I think, some of those finals he lost, he didn't seem to turn up in. I mean, just 12 months ago in the European Masters, he lost 9-3 to Karen Wilson in a very poor match, really. And couldn't sustain the form in the key title match where the trophies presented. That was not the case in Nuremberg. He played very well indeed all week. He beat the world champion, Luca Purcell. He played, I think, probably his best match was against Mark Selby in the semi-finals, And, of course, against Judd Trump as well. Uh, he came through 9-6. Trump put him under a bit of pressure from 7-3 down to get back to 7-6. And the Hawk responded. So it's world, uh, world ranking title number four. Go back to April the 15th. That was day one of the Crucible. Barry Hawkins was not... At the Crucible this year, he didn't qualify, dropped out of the top 16, first year since 2005. You can imagine the Hawkins household, maybe not the happiest place in Britain that day. And he was pondering, he's about to turn 44, he's getting older, he was pondering his future. And he actually said last night, you know, he wondered if he'd ever win a tournament again. Because it's hard, it's hard to win. And it's hard when you drop out of the top 16. It's um, psychologically difficult because you feel that you've taken a step backwards. You've got to go to qualifiers, remember you had to qualify for, for this event. Sean O'Sullivan made that maximum against him and you can kind of get stuck in a rut but straight away things have been transformed he's back in the 16 he'll be champion of champions probably the first two at least players series events and if he can keep his top 16 place seeded for the UK Championship he'll be at the Masters and hopefully from his perspective the Crucible at the end of the season good luck to Barry nice bloke good bloke uh, and really good player you know this sort of thing that he's underrated has got to stop I mean, his safety game is right up there with the best. It really is. Um, he's a heavy scorer, one of only 15 players to make 400 centuries in competition. He's really good with the rest. I think he's arguably the best player at potting when the cue ball is just off the cushion. He never seems to miss in that environment. So the only thing he's really lacked is maybe a bit of killer instinct in the big occasions. Um, but he didn't like it last night. And, uh, well, the, 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 the tournament was terrific. And Barry winning it, I know, was a very popular win. And at the end of this podcast, there's a little bonus, because I, I did interview him here four years ago, uh, 2019. And I'm going to just tack that on to the end. So if you haven't heard that before, if you want to hear from Barry again, obviously he's slightly out of date now, but he talks about his career, how he got started in snooker. It's quite interesting, I think. So that'll be coming up later uh, on the podcast. And uh, we've had some feedback meantime about the tournament. Phil Spivy. What an enjoyable week the tournament has been. Here are a few reflections on the event. A great win for Barry Hawkins. Such a fine player, really good to watch. Does everything so well and has one of the nicest cue actions in the game. If someone made a snooker top trumps game, 
he'd surely score well in virtually every department. He's described so often as underrated that it really can't that that it can't really be true. I think anyone associated with snooker knows how good he is, and he certainly had a tough draw. Just jumping in there, Phil. I mean, you're right what you say about he's good in every department. This underrated thing, people sort of get tagged with things, and it's very hard to escape them. He's not underrated by any of his fellow players. I mean, you look at the head-to-head with Trump, he's now ahead 8-7. He's only 11-10 down to Selby. You know, these are the big hitters in the game, and he's right up there competitive with them. Um, there's no one he hasn't beaten. Um, but I think a lot of it is, and we, we do say quite often he comes through under the radar, and what we mean by that is it normally starts out on an outside table, so you don't see him that much until the latter stages. That's all it really is. Uh, Phil continues, also good to see Judd Trump back to form. I suspect this will be a good season for him, and he's my early tip for the world title in May. That's a big shout early on, but we'll, uh, we won't hold you to it. He continues, Phil, this tournament has encapsulated what I love about snooker. It's not the most prestigious event, but ultimately when the action starts, it doesn't really matter. Whether it's the China Open, UK Championship or European Masters, the eventual winner has to make his or her way through a field that includes most or all of the top players. And by the time we reach the weekend... It's two best of 11 semis, then to two session finals. So regardless of the event, it's a similar, similar level of difficulty for the winner. Barry Hawkins' success this week is not diminished by the fact that he that isn't it isn't a so-called major or triple crown event. Uh, I enjoyed your commentary through the week. You did a great job of building up the anticipation for the semi-finals, which were fantastic, as was the final. One final point, please bring back snooker player Bingo. You see, thank you, Phil. He softened me up there with a, with a compliment. Uh, well, we, we, I'm sure snooker player Bingo is not is not done yet. Uh, Kelly Barker also enjoyed the action. She says, uh, "I just wanted to say what a great week of snooker it's been at the European Masters, and great to have a proper event back on the box." I've watched as much as possible of the Championship League and the qualifiers, but this event felt like the real start of the season, with plenty more to come. There, great to see the Hawk back in the winners' enclosure after far too long, and what a great standard all week I thought. Selby and Trump will have good seasons, I feel, and I thought Luca played pretty well considering it was his first event since Sheffield and his three-month celebration. If this week was a sign of things to come, I can't wait for the season ahead. It would be great to have the Chinese events back too. Snooker's back. Well, thank you, Kelly. A, a clarion call there. And, yeah, it was a terrific week. I think, I mean, in Germany, obviously, the audience certainly make um, a difference, and it was a terrific venue, really good venue uh, in Nuremberg, and uh, good crowds, enthusiastic, but sort of different, really, to... You know, they're very uh, respectful. I mean, if that had been a final, say, in London, it would have been a bit rowdier. And some people like that. And it's just a different kind of vibe. But in Germany, they're just very respectful. They watch, they appreciate, and they certainly, the players certainly appreciate them. You know, they, 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 they like the fact that they get that support. Um, it was interesting about, you mentioned Luca Priscilla, of course, now he is favoured for the TV table, as he should be. You know, he's our world champion, he's, he's new. Uh, in that regard, he's uh, unique because he's from mainland Europe. He's a star we need to build up, and to build him up, we need to, need to see him. But from Trump's perspective, of course now, he, I mean, there was a time about a year ago when if you just said to Judge Trump you're on table two, he would have asked for a map because he wouldn't know where it was. But actually his first match uh, in the European Masters on the main table was actually the semi-finals. And I actually think in some ways that may have done him a favour because the, you don't get the same... I mean, they're all streamed. The four tables are streamed, so you can watch them. But the main focus is always the TV table. It doesn't hurt to be out of the way a little bit. I say about Barry Hawkins being under the radar. Get a couple of rounds under your belt where the, the scrutiny isn't as strong. It's not a bad thing, that. Um, Luca Purcell's got the opposite. He's going to be on the main table. And he actually said he thought that helped him because he really tried because he knows people are watching and, and he wants to represent sport, which is good to hear. But from Trump's perspective against Chris Wakelin, 4-0 down... One five four. He may have been under more pressure to actually even get close to turning that round on the main table. Now, you could argue maybe Chris Wakelin wouldn't have been falling up on the main, main table. We'll never know. But um, anyway, uh, Trump and Selby, you say Kelly are going to have a good season. I, I see no reason why not. I thought Mark Selby played really well also. Um, but Hawkins in that semi-final was absolutely superb. But I know what people are saying. Yes, we, we absolutely celebrate Barry Hawkins. We celebrate the tournament. But tell us about the sausages. Now, if you were with us last week, we, I mentioned that Nuremberg was known for its sausages. And uh, we've got some uh, first-hand uh, eyewitness evidence here about the Nuremberg sausages. So this is on Declan. He says, I've been in Nuremberg this week. Enjoyable few sessions of the snooker. 
watching six members of the top 16 across the three tables. Anyway, enough of the sporting banter and on to the more pressing matter of the sausages of Nuremberg. I did, I did indeed, indeed sample the famous Nuremberg sausages in the city's beautiful market square. When in Nuremberg, one will typically be presented with three grilled sausages in a bread roll. By German standards, these sausages are quite small, and there's a local tale behind this. You see, the World Snooker podcast is coming back soon, and good luck to them, you know, but they're not going to have this sort of content. It's <laughs> not, are they? Uh, anyway, Declan continues... This may be a niche aspect of the World Snooker Tour, but it's reported here that the small size of Nuremberg sausages is due to a nightly curfew in days past that meant that the old town walls were closed every evening and the only way the burghers of the town could obtain a sausage at a late hour was by having them pass through the keyhole of the gates into the city. You see, the sausages were only made outside of the old town walls and sausage merchants made them small enough to go through the keyhole so that town residents could have late-night feasts to their heart's content. Perhaps this is one origin of the name Gro- of the name Grossman. Separately, I think I read somewhere that there was to be a museum to the sausage in Nuremberg. What a sentence that is. I'll read it again. Separately, I think I read somewhere that there was to be a museum to the sausage in Nuremberg. However, it was feared it could be one of the worst sausages in the world. And that's more of a visual joke, but he's made it... It's rip-tickling wordplay, and uh, worst sausage museums in the world is a good joke. More than once, I did enjoy the sausages with sauerkraut on a bread roll. This is very traditional in the region. However, if kraut was not available, you could maybe improvise with sausages and cheese in the bread roll. This would be a worst-case scenario. That's another uh, visual joke. Um, Enjoying the podcast and the humour, joking around was always such an integral part of the snooker scene growing back. Uh, thank you, Declan. I think a, 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 a small knowledge of German is, re- is required for, for that. And by the way, the... the, the, the um, the joke section will return later. We had it last week. It was a huge success. <laughs> um, and it will return later. But thank you for your um, sausage report there. I did speak to um, a member of the World Snooker Tour media team. And he actually, the, the ante's been upped because in, he said in the hotel there was a dish called the Seven Sausages of Nuremberg. Now that sounds like a Frederick Forsyth novel, I know. But the Seven Sausages of Nuremberg was a dish. Um, it, it's pretty self-explanatory what it was. So it's a big sausage area, and, um, you know, it, 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 we, we flagged it up last week, and it's good to hear that someone has actually sampled them and given us a bit of historical uh, context as well uh, into the sausage. A change of subject. Uh, we've got uh, Donal here. Donal O'Gorman from Dublin. See, I don't know if you read out random emails about nothing in particular. I know you're going to say that's all you do. But I just wanted to make a comment about Stephen Hendry. I'm about the same age as Stephen... And I watched his dominance in the 90s and always admired his style of play. But I was a huge Jimmy White fan. It was heartbreaking for me to watch Jimmy being edged out by Stephen so much in that era. I don't know if you know much about Irish sport, but in Gaelic football over here, there's a county called Mayo, and they haven't won the All-Ireland title for 72 years. They've been in 11 finals since then. It really is a travesty and a bigger monkey on their back as every year goes on. Anyway, there's a lot of talk about that over here. And when I talk to my kids and other people about it, I say, you think that's bad? You should have seen the heartbreak that was involved in Jimmy White losing final after final after final in the World Championship, and most of them to Stephen Hendry. I wasn't really a fan of Stephen the man either. I always thought he was very sour and a bit of a personality-free zone. In fairness, I think everyone thought that. Truth be told, I think he'd actually admit it. Anyway, fast forward 30 years, and I watch his punditry regularly. I know you're on a different channel to him, but I think you'd, you'd be the first to admit how good of a pundit he is and has become. I think every year he actually gets better. He's very honest. He calls it exactly as he sees it, which is precisely what you want from a pundit. But there's also his YouTube channel, Stephen Hendry's Q-Tips. I have to say I love it. The format of it is very enjoyable. I know not a massive amount of thought or inventiveness has gone into it, a bit like your podcast, but it really works. And I think his style and honesty really suits the format. He has developed a really top-notch sense of humour, Maybe it was always there and has just come out in later years. But well done, Stephen. Hats off. Very good entertainment. P.S. I looked at your Ray Reardon interview. How impressive is he for 90? Good interview. Pity it was so short. Well, thank you, Donald. And uh, by the way, the US Open tennis has started. There's a couple of backhands there that, uh, that they, was, they would really uh, go for. Uh, but the Ray Reardon interview, a bit was cut out of it. That five minutes was cut out. Not by me, but, um, you know, World Snooker Tour had an idea of what they wanted and, and that's what they uh, put out. Um... When it comes to Stephen Hendry, by the way, I'm, I am on the same channel. as in my commentate with him on ITV. So I've I worked with him quite a few times. He's an excellent pundit. He doesn't always translate the, the best 
players in sport actually are because punditry is about communication, it's about language. And Stephen is actually a little bit like when he was a player. He's a less, he's more character. He doesn't over-talk. He just is very direct. He says what he thinks. He's got the record in the game to do that. You know, you, you can't really... Um, no one can say, well, what do you know? <laughs> he, he, you know, he's got the record in the game. So he can do that. He's a breath of fresh air, really. I, I agree with what you say. In terms of his personality when he played, I mean, he put everything into playing. And he sort of did follow Steve Davis in as much as, you know, he, he felt that sort of being... Standing aside and being a bit aloof actually was an advantage, and you could argue it was. Uh, but, he's, yeah, the YouTube channel, I think we, we've established, is excellent. And um, it's good to see him enjoying doing that as well. You know, he, he seems to enjoy doing it, and it's, it's a definite plus for the sport. So um, it's good that Stephen, you know, has got that sort of outlet now. And, uh, yeah, long may it continue. Now, about continuing feedback about the Crucible and whether the... Um, well, Championship is going to leave there, which I think it's quite likely it will. But anyway, Sean from Prestwick, long-time listener, first-time correspondent. Whilst the Crucible Theatre's name, of course, alludes to the city's steel-making heritage, I do often like to imagine it reflects something of Arthur Miller's play also, in so much as anyone who so much as suggests it, it, it isn't a very good venue for an international sporting extravaganza is looked upon as right for the figurative noose for crimes against snooker tradition. I've attended a number of times, and as a man standing at six foot three. The seats are torture. Those accused of witchery could scarcely tolerate. Unlike such horrors at other sports, I don't have the option to repeatedly stand up for fear of being publicly flogged or worse, pointed at by a snooker player on live television and told off by a besuited referee. Beyond that, the venue looks tired, allows for limited accessibility and provides poor facilities for players on the grandest stage of all. Whilst I would happily see the championships continue in Sheffield, I think Barry Hearn is right that a new venue or reconstruction of the Crucible would have to take place. As a man with some links to theatre yourself, do you know if, A, the people who use and run the theatre the rest of the year round would countenance such reconstruction for a second uh, venue, and B, or for a second, or, or B, is it even economically viable to have such a big theatrical venue in this day and age in a city like Sheffield? Well, I'll jump in there. I have answered that before. The answer is no and no, that it's not economically viable. There's no 3,000-seat theatre in Britain, so why would Sheffield suddenly uh, put one up? Um, it's just a non-start of that. Now, the, the venue, they could build a venue that's used for other things, conferences, concerts and so on. That's a possibility, and snooker could be one of the things that they have in it. Uh, but I don't I don't see a purpose-built theatre being that size. Anyway, uh, Sean continues, On the latter, my guess is it's not, and you have to double up, as, oh, you actually say it yourself, you double up as some sort of conference venue to appeal to those less concerned with the high art of drama. Also assume that if the championship left the Crucible, that would put at risk the venue's long-term future. Though I haven't lived in Sheffield, I can't speak to how much funding goes into the arts generally. I would expect during tournament, they do a fair bit of solid business that helps fund it all year round. Thanks for your listening pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Uh, there's a couple more, and then I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, Christian writes, just catching on your recent podcast, I wanted to chip in about the likelihood of the World Championship leaving Sheffield, which I agree is very likely. Last year, the BBC ran a feature during a mid-session interval where they spoke to various people about possibly leaving the Crucible. One of those people was a higher-up at the at WST, I forget who. His complete lack of clarity on the subject ironically made it clear that they were looking to go elsewhere and prompted me to buy my first-ever ticket to live snooker to ensure that I didn't miss out on the oft-mentioned magic. It really is something special, and I'm going back for the final next year. I know constant growth is the most important thing to the men in suits, but I don't feel that a huge arena where you're sat roughly three nautical miles from the table has the same draw as, say, the Crucible. I realise that's slightly parochial and won't make, make much, very much money and don't really know how to square that opinion with the desire to make snooker more popular. And unfortunately, this train of thought doesn't have much in the way of a conclusion. Only a vague sense of pessimism, I suppose. If snooker ends up wildly popular, it'll probably be worth it. So uh, <coughs> we've had sort of uh, uh, one uh, sort of si both sides there. We, 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 re we uh, welcome all opinions on this podcast, even wrong ones. But we've had both sides there. And now it's over to Brian Dobson, friend of the podcast. He's been on it on our fan special. Who's going to uh, not quite have the casting vote, but he's going to tell us what he thinks. Following on from your recent discussion with Barry Hearn, I thought I'd drop your line to my thoughts on the future expansion of the sport. I recently purchased a ticket for an evening with snooker legends at the New Theatre Royal Portsmouth, which was a very enjoyable evening. I had a question for the panel, which consisted of former world champions Steve Davis, Dennis Taylor, John Parrott, Ken Doherty, and excellent. Ex 
expertly compared by our very own John Virgo. The question was, should the World Championship move away from the Crucible, given the fact that Snooker's Blue Ribbon event has the smallest capacity seating of any other venue? Overwhelmingly, all of these legends of the game said the Crucible is synonymous with the Worlds, and therefore it should remain in the City of Steel. I've given this much thought, and whilst I'm clearly the minority, I disagree, as I do believe the time is right to spread the gospel of snooker beyond this infamous venue once the contract expires in 2027. There's no doubting that the Crucible is the ultimate test of any player, and a truly outstanding venue, to which I have had the pleasure of attending on many occasions. However, with tickets harder and harder to obtain, escalating prices, and an auditorium that seats 980, I believe the Crucible's days are surely numbered. My solution would be to use the Crucible to stage a WST Champion of Champions style event featuring winners from the previous season, similar to Matchroom's version, or a tournament open only to previous world champions. A format similar to, niche reference coming up, the Kit Cup break for world champions, as played in 1985 and won by that year's world champion, Dennis Taylor. Thus keeping the Crucible as a venue for the elite champions of the game, I appreciate this may not be initially popular, but the benefits of a bigger, more prosperous venue, plus potentially staging this overseas and expanding or rapidly developing markets would be commercially in the best interest of the sport. The Crucible has been fantastic for the sport, but it's time for a new, brave new world to give the game the prestige it deserves. Brian Dobson. Well, we've had to reg- <coughs> various opinions there. The point about the Crucible's future, I don't see it being imperiled by the loss of the snooker because World Snooker don't pay anything for the right to stage it there. I mean, obviously the venue takes money in, in, in refreshments and so on, but it's a very well-established uh, theatre now in the north of England. It doesn't it doesn't rely on the snooker. The local economy does. They reckon it's sort of three million quid or around that that, that comes into Sheffield in bars and hotels and restaurants and whatever shops during the, the 17 days. So that would be a big economic hit. And that's why, you know, the ball is kind of in Sheffield City Council's core um, as to sort of what happens in the future. And I think <laughs> Barry Hearn's been quite clever in a way in actually making them the sort of culprits in a way if it does leave. Um, it's interesting people's experiences of going to the Crucible we've heard good and bad um, here's what I think well there's a number of things I think the first is the people who say should leave one interesting thing that I've noted and I've gone through all the emails and actually looked at other comments on this I haven't seen one person actually suggest an alternative venue not one person this vague idea it should go somewhere else but where? where should it go? we've heard about it. maybe it should go to a venue in Sheffield that doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't exist, so where should it go? What would be a better venue for the World Championship than the Crucible? Where? Is it just going to be some soulless leisure centre because it's got more seats and you can flog the tickets? I think people need to be very careful. Um, all this brave new world stuff, it might not be a brave new world. My prediction is if it leaves the Crucible, the tournament will be cut in days and that means the matches will be cut. Now, if people prefer that, that's up to them. But a lot of people like the format as it is. Um, and the other thing is, I've heard it compared to... Quite a few people have sort of said, oh, well, the Open Golf Championship, you know, they don't have that at St Andrews every year. They sort of come back to it every few years. It's perfectly true. But let's look at another example in the same sport, the US Masters, OK? That is played every year at the Augusta, Augusta National. Now, there are other courses in America. Maybe they could move that round the country. Would, would the tournament be as memorable then? The answer, 100%, no. It is associated with that course. And the World Championship is associated with the Crucible. And I have to say, people are saying, oh, well, you know, you, you'll get uh, you'll get strung up if you say you've got to leave the Crucible. Actually, increasingly, the opposite is true. Uh, people who stand up for the Crucible are painted as sort of these old traditionalists who never want any change. Pretty much every week on this podcast, I call for change of various sorts. Uh, I'm not dyed in the wool traditionalist at all. There's lots of things I think should change, and indeed... Lots of things over the years have changed. Some for the better, some for the worst. But the idea that if you stand up for the crucible, you're just standing in the way of progress is nonsense. I think any sport has to recognise what works for it and what are the attractions to it. And, you know, people come from all over the world to attend that tournament. And it's to a large degree because of the sort of mythology that has grown up around the venue. The other thing you hear constantly is, oh, you know, there's no room for anything, there's no room backstage. Well, there is actually. What, what don't we have that we should have? <laughs> Lots of people who've never been backstage like to comment on that. But what don't we have backstage that we should have? Um, there's an argument for corporate, more corporate hospitality. I understand that that brings in a lot of money. Personally, I couldn't care less about it. You know, the only people that come along to that, the people taking a day off work, 
on a jolly to come and drink the, the, the white wine and eat the canapes and largely not watch any of the snooker. It's just a jolly. Um, now, I understand that's part of sport now, but is that really the reason we should be changing venues for the World Championship? Um, so, I respect all opinions on this, but you know the idea that if you defend the Crucible, you're somehow just just you know stuck in the past. No, I, d- I disagree with that. I, d- I don't think so. Um, and until somebody can come up with, a, with an actual venue, not a, not a theoretical venue that doesn't exist, or just an idea for another venue, before until someone can come up with actually a, a definitive venue where it should be, then I don't see why people shouldn't defend the Crucible. And I can guarantee, if people do start throwing around venues, there'll be perfectly good reasons why it can't be held there. The Temperdrome is one that sometimes comes up in Berlin. Um, they only break even on that now. That's five days. If they're going to hire it for basically three weeks, they would probably lose money because ticket sales are not everything. This is what people don't understand. They're not everything. Um, anyway, it'd be interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the, the writing's on the wall. Um, but uh, as I said last week and I've said before, careful what you wish for. Speaking of which, we've got the jokes uh, coming up now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, now Steve Dunn has got in contact. There's been a little bit of comment on the jokes. Uh, not all of it good, to be honest. Um, well, actually, before we do that, let's, uh, we'll, we'll save that because you know we need to give people a reason to keep listening. Uh, Mark Williams, not that one, has been has written in about a current issue. He says, uh, I've watched the WST clip of an interview with Sean Murphy who says he's going to start taking two cues to matches so he'll have an alternative cue available to adapt to the playing conditions. And I thought that getting used to a cue takes time to do and switching back and forth would be a dangerous option. It's well known that lots of players have the same cue for the whole career. Look at Stephen Hendry and Ken Doherty, for example. That's until Stephen's cue was broken, of course. Mark Williams, which took, took a second cue years ago, Saw him replying to the video clip on Instagram, but I don't know any details of this, and he hasn't done it since. So that must say something. It would be great to know your views on this, and if you can ask a few of your colleagues or other players to get their views too. Well, Luca Purcell did this as well, Mark, uh, at the Masters one year after he'd lost his cue and got a bit sort of tangled up, which was the best cue. From what I've heard from players, they're all a bit kind of sceptical about this. Um, they, They... see it as a bit of a non-starter. Now, we'll see whether Sean does it or not. Obviously, it won't be if he does it. There's a slight issue for me with sort of just taking out the snooker element, the the travelling element of it, because, you know, it's a risky business at the moment with queues. I mean, Luca lost his queues after he turned up again in transit from Seattle. Um, But are you going to put... Say you have three queues, are you going to put them all in the same case? Are you going to have three cases? It's going to get very... um, Kind of difficult to travel. Um, well, the jury's out till it happens, but from what the, the feedback I've heard from other players is sceptical about this, uh, frankly. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, now, Steve Dunn, uh, these uh, jokes. He says, I'm actually a professional joke writer. I listened to your new joke section. It confirmed I should never try snooker commentary. Uh, just kidding. In all seriousness, I think it'll be a fun new segment. Now, Steve has sent in his own jokes, okay? I'm going I'm to save them, Steve, because we may need them. <laughs> we may need them in the future. So I will save them. And, uh, well, I'll just give you one just to um, sort of give you, give you a sense of wh- where Steve is. Why did the chicken cross the snooker table? I don't know, but it was definitely a foul. F-O-W-L. Another visual joke, really. Uh, so that's... Uh, <laughs> Steve is a professional joke writer. Um, so thank you for that. Well, I'll save the others. And Brian Campbell uh, has also, uh, well, he's also written in. Uh, well, he's actually mentioned here at the end about the uh, the Sean Murphy Q business. He says, um, I've never understood why players don't have a backup queue with them in case of accidents or breakages. In recent times, we've seen the trouble Ronnie O'Sullivan's had with his tip, scrambling around at intervals and after matches trying to repair it. And at the Worlds, Kyron Wilson had an issue with the queue he was using in his match with John Higgins. I know that a replica queue, replica even if it's meant to be exactly the same as a player's number one queue, may have a minuscule differences. However, surely a backup you practice with is a better option than a mid-match unsettling issue. Guitarists in rock bands, for example, have their number one guitar. However, they always have a backup handy just in case they break a string during their set. Well, I suppose, I mean, it's, it sounds like a good idea, Brian, but I suppose, you know, the, cues feel differently and, uh, you know, every every sort of queue 
you know, is slightly different. So the backup queue may not feel exactly the same. Um, I know one thing, though. John Paris will be busy with these, pic- with these pictures at the end of tournaments if there's more queues going, because that's one of the great traditions. Brian sent a couple of jokes himself. Um, I'll give you an example of, of his oeuvre. Uh, what do you call a Scottish snooker player? Chalk McHugh. <laughs> so, uh, that's, uh, again, I'll save those up, uh, uh, Brian, in case, in case we need them. But uh, let's move on to the, uh, the, the joke section this week. If you didn't work with us last week, it was just a, a little palate cleanser halfway through the podcast um, to sort of take away the more serious elements of the discussion. Um, so here we go. There's three jokes written by me. Um, number one. What? Number one. What did the doctor say when I rushed into his busy surgery to tell him I felt like a snooker ball? Get to the end of the queue. Actually, it should be get to the front of the queue, shouldn't it? <laughs> I've just realised. Get to the, it should be get to the front of the queue. Okay, that's not the best start, but anyway. Joke number two. What do you call it when a Canadian snooker player takes down a superhero? Okay, what do you call it when a Canadian snooker player takes down a superhero? A Thor burn. A Thor burn. That's not bad, I don't think. This is worse than that. Speaking of which, number three. What did the police officer say when he caught a thief red-handed in the act of stealing snooker equipment? You're under arrest. Now, the, the thing there is, the, the, uh, maybe you should have made clear the equipment had fallen on the thief. So he was literally under arrest. That one's no good, I don't think. Thorburn was all right. The first one uh, had the wrong um, uh, punchline. <laughs> so uh, we'd be relying heavily. If you've got any jokes you want to send in, snooker-related, keep them clean. Um, by all means, do. And, uh, you know, we, we well, you've heard the standard. I think we definitely will read them out. <laughs> judging by that so that's it really it's not the longest edition but as I said the Barry Hawkins interview is coming up next um, and uh, I think there's as Kelly said Kelly Barker said there is a sort of feeling the snooker season has started properly now um, you know it's going to be quite busy we've got Shanghai coming up soon qualifying in between um, I do want to say actually on the European Masters I thought the um, credit where it's due I thought the World Snooker Tour social media was excellent they did a lot of stuff interviews and just updates and it added to a general feeling that, you know, there was a sort of vibrancy around the tournament. I had a few messages actually from people who were there really enjoying it. And they thought it was a great venue and good value. You know, you go along the seven tables, you get to see a lot of stars. And one person messaged to say how much she appreciated the fact that the players had all made time, to, you know, to speak to her and pose for selfies and sign autographs and just be good guys, which is what they are, most of them. You know, they'll do that. It's, it's good that, that, that snooker players are like that. So that's that's good. Um, the scoring was no good for most of the week. The live scoring, it went down a few times. I mean, I did a match, uh, Karen Wilson, CJ, where they had to go off of sort of five, ten minutes because the scoreboard broke. Mark Selby and Anthony Hamilton uh, were delayed by 15 minutes in their match because the scoring wasn't working. It was quite hard at times to follow what was happening. And that's an issue that just seems destined to run and run until apparently the UK Championship will be the first event where the new system will be working um, uh, draw your own conclusions from that but that's the end of November I mean that's still a, a lot of tournaments to come before then um, and it'd be interesting to see what happens in China you know whether it's um, whether the scoring is, is better or worse out there um, the, the sort of further the tour has to travel but anyway um, yeah it was a good week and uh, the man who won it was Barry Hawkins and very shortly you can hear my interview this was done in January 2019 so a little while ago now but Barry talks about his career, how he got started in his snooker, and uh, just general sort of highlights, uh, which now, of course, he can add to. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out our other podcasts. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But that's it for now. So on to the Barry Hawkins interview from 2019. Barry, you always stop asking players how they discovered snooker, so what was your introduction? Um... Well, I used to live on a, uh, a council estate when I was really young. Um, a few of my friends started going down a local snooker club, which was only maybe 15-minute walk away. So I um, decided to go down there one one evening after school, and um, I remember playing. And then as soon as I started playing, I knew I knew them really that I, I loved the game, and it just went from there. Really, I just started going down to the snooker club and brushing tables, and just progressed from there. And snooker was 
obviously real big on the TV then, wasn't it? So you would have seen a mm. lot of it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Jimmy inspired me to keep playing, watching him in all them world championships, you know, when he done well and lost all them finals. So, um, yeah, I remember, I remember breaking down in tears, I think, at one point when he missed, missed the black. I think it was 17 all, wasn't it? Yeah. He missed the black. You weren't alone in that. No, exactly. <laughs> I remember, I remember like, I was like, oh, I was devastated. Mm. And I think I was down the snoop club at the time watching it. So, um, yeah, he, he was my favourite player growing up mm. and he, I think he, he probably inspired me to, to play snooker. Mm. So how quickly did you sort of get good? Um, well, I don't like to say really. Because <laughs> um, no, a, yeah. a lot of kids take the game quick, up. I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, once I did start playing, he couldn't get me off the table. Mm. I was on it day and night as much as I could really. Any any in-between school time, I was I was, I was just at a snooker club. Um, but I think within a, within a couple of years, I was making centuries... Um, I think uh, I won the under 15s and I think I started mm. playing about back end of 11, 12. So at the time, winning the under 15 was a was a big event, you know, Hemsby and Pontins. Um, there was so many great players, David Gray, Holty, all the, all the players around my age, really. There was all, all around it. So, yeah, I think from then, I think that was when I decided, right, I'll give this a proper go. Mm. And also at that time, there was quite a thriving junior circuit, wasn't there? So there was a lot of tournaments oh. to play in. Oh, it was huge. I was going to tournaments every weekend during the tournaments all around the country. Um, so yeah, I think got scored very well, you know, back then playing tournaments week in, week out against class players. So um, yeah, it was it was absolutely it was amazing back then. Mm. But I think I'm right in saying before you turned pro, you had quite an unusual thing for a snooker player—a job before before turning pro. Is that right? You worked in an office? Um, right? No, I, I did. I did. I give it up for a little while, and okay. I, I, I started working in an office, like an office clerk, really. Mm. And I, I did go for a couple of job interviews, and I went for. I remember going up Cannon Street and going for a. a like an office junior job really in a solicitors but yeah. they was going to progress me on to going to courses and stuff like that and I only missed out by one person I think right. um, so who knows you know it might have been totally different if I got that job mm. and um, yeah someone persuaded me to come back and I'll give it a, I'll give it another go and uh, yeah lucky for me it's worked out you know mm. but do you think you saw snooker as a career then I mean obviously you would have seen the stars making a lot of mm. money but also a lot of pros down the list then there's quite a, a lot yeah. of pros on the tour who obviously weren't yeah no I mean back then it's it's a it's a massive gamble, isn't it? Like anything you do. So, um, but I loved the game so much back then. I was so young, and all you wanted to do is play, and I loved it so much. So, I did miss it when I jacked it in for a while. Um, and lucky for me, a couple of friends from the club rung me up and um, said, "Look, you've got to give this a give it a go." You know, because they, I mean, I think they they saw maybe I could do all right back then. So, um, but you never know. But yeah, I'd, it was um, it was a it was a risk, but. Um, if you want to do well at something, sometimes you've got to take a risk, haven't you? Mm. So, how did you find turning pro? Because it's changed a little bit, sort of recently with, with Jason Ferguson. But back then, you basically just turn up with your cue, don't you? You're not, there's no induction or anything. You just turn up, you start playing, and, yeah. and you're a professional. But how did you find the sort of step up? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember I had one year at Blackpool when, at the time, you could just pay money to turn professional, no matter what sort of standard yeah. you were. There was people playing with. There's dis- people with disabilities playing back yeah. then. I remember a fella playing with one arm. He yeah. had like different instruments. Graham Francis. Graham yeah. Francis. Yeah, 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 exactly. He was at that all the year. Yeah. I was there. So um, yeah, long as you paid your money, it didn't mm. really matter. It was, and you had to get through maybe seven or eight rounds to maybe get to the, get to the venue. Um, but yeah, I think I've done okay. Um, I think David Gray and and someone called Alan Burnett back then. Really, they were the two best players of the of that year rookies of the year if you like and I, I think I've done the third best so yeah. I've done alright out there I didn't set the world alight but I've done won a lot of matches so um, yeah I just yeah I enjoyed every minute of it to be fair maybe I enjoyed it a little bit too much <laughs> I was 17 and mm. was at Blackpool in the summer at the yeah. time so um, sne- sneaked off to a couple of late night bars a few mm. times and yeah so um, yeah no it was, that was good times you know looking back good memories yeah but was there a point where you thought I suppose maybe it's getting a bit older I've got to take this a bit more seriously oh yeah I mean it's I learned from you learn from a very young age really if you if you abuse the game then it you get found out and um, it never forgives you um even nowadays sometimes I go off the rails a tiny bit not not that much but you know you know deep down you think I can't can't keep abusing it because it's going to come back and, and bite me in the bum really so um yeah back then you um you got you got to put the hours and you get, you get what you in Reno. Mm. But did you f- feel that you were improving? I mean, because looking back at your career, it maybe took a little while to establish yourself, mm. but you were, guess, learning yeah. on the job, and as you say, you were very young at the time. Yeah, I mean, some players, they come in and make a massive impact and break through, you know, like, obviously Ronnie's a special special talent, um, but other players develop later, and I've, I've, I think I'm one of them players, you know, it took me a long time to know that you have to have a bit of belief in yourself um, it just takes a long time to learn really sometimes and get used to playing against the top players and 
in the big arenas and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think I made, I've made steady progress all the time. And I think, obviously, started working with Terry Griffiths quite a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. That made a big difference as well. Um, so, yeah, I think sometimes you just have to keep at it and, uh, and just keep going, really, mm-hmm. and see what happens. Do you remember your first TV game? Um, I remember one of my first TV, TV games. I think I played James Ottener. Mm-hmm. I think it was the LG Cup back yeah. then. And I, it was the last 16, and I, yeah, I got to the quarterfinals, actually. I think that was my first ever venue. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I loved it, and I lost to Joe Swell, actually, 5-4, to get to the semis, and I think I might have been to play Ronnie, so that would have been a, a huge, huge, um, huge match for me. But, yeah, I loved it. I loved playing at the venue. I can remember, definitely. What was it like, like, first on telly? You know, it's very different, isn't it? You've got the cameras, yeah. a lot more attention on you. Ah, oh, all eyes on you, yeah. It's, it's, it's more nerve-wracking. It's great when everything's going well, but... It, the tough part is when you're not playing well and um, things are not going well. That's the that's when you really need to dig deep. You know, that's that's the difference. It's all great when you're potting balls and everything's going your way. Mm. There's no problem at all. But it's just when you you start things going bad against you and you can get embarrassed out there sometimes. But you just have to keep trying to dig deep. That's the that's mm. the difficult part. Yeah, because you know people are watching. Particularly yeah. when, when you're starting out and your family be watching yeah, and everyone's you, wishing you well. Yeah, you just feel like you're, you're letting people down. Not just not just yourself. You feel like you're letting others down. Mm. But I think well, I think I've had enough of them experiences now to know that it's just what it is you know you just sometimes you just go out there and you can't perform and other times it's great but um, I, I do think obviously I'm 39 now so I'm no spring chicken but I do think I'm able to um, uh, bounce back a little bit better than mm. I used to definitely mm. 2005 you kind of broke through a little bit you got to the semi-finals of the Welsh mm. and then later in the year the Grand Prix and I think you played Ronnie in both of them and they were both close yeah um, I remember and yeah. that was kind of maybe your first taste of the real big time getting mm. to the, the business end of a big tournament yeah and against someone like him mm. um, I think at the time they, if, I'm, if I remember rightly I think there was only six tournaments then mm. so I think two semi-finals out of six tournaments that year or seven tournaments whatever it was I had a decent year you know um, but yeah that was a big eye opener you know playing against Ronnie and different, different kind of pressure and obviously packed crowd and um, yeah both times narrowly lost to him I think mm. I lost did I 6-4 I think one of them and 5-4 yeah, and the yeah. other maybe but um, yeah I thought maybe back then obviously back then I thought right I can I can do it against the very best mm. you know? mm. and then you made your crucible debut 2006 you won the first frame against Ken yeah. it's all going well and then you don't <laughs> win another one I mean that, yeah. that was kind of welcome to the crucible oh it? yeah I remember <laughs> I've been trying for so long to. I kept getting beat to qualify for the crucible I've done well in other events but that was the that's the big one everyone wants to get to and um, I remember the t- I had a tough draw in qualifying I beat Ding actually to mm. qualify I played so I played very well against him you know it was a great game I had against Ding um, I think not too long before that he'd, he'd bashed me up and I thought oh my god that's a really yeah. really tough draw you know so um, to come through that I thought I felt great and um, everyone was going well wait till you get to the crucible it's, um, it's a different it's an eye opener it's a different kettle of fish you know it's so nerve wracking and um, I walked out there and it was a great buzz won the first frame and I thought oh what's everyone talking about you know <laughs> this is easy and then um, that was it I realised it ain't that easy and I lost 10-1 yeah mm. rabbit in the headlights mm. <laughs> but you're not, not alone in that a lot of people yeah. will, uh, well, I mean, we'll come on to your crucible yeah. record later but think, let's say think, things turn around for you yeah. um, you then in, in 20, 2007 you won the qualifier for the Masters mm. which obviously got you into the Masters so that yeah. was a big deal wasn't it that was another, yeah it was a big deal it wasn't um, at the time before that the qualifying event was like a sponsored by Benson and Edges mm. and that was a massive event in itself um, it changed a little bit when I won it it went to Prestatton mm. um, there's still a load of great players in it it was still, still a good tournament to win and obviously yeah. to get to the to the was it Wembley Arena Wembley, I think. Arena, Wembley yeah. Arena at the time you know, I was buzzing you know. so um, to get there and, and play in that big arena was um, was fantastic mm. and I think Ken might have beaten me again there mm. um yeah, I think yeah. So uh, yeah, he bashed me up a couple of times. Yeah. But it's all <laughs> about experience, isn't yeah. it? You know, you like you're ticking ticking the boxes. You get into yeah. semi-finals, you get to the Crucible, you win a tournament, you get to the Masters. You're, you're mm. still learning all the time. I guess. All, always, I'm learning now. Yeah. Um, I think you never stop learning. And, and, and Ronnie's prime example at the moment. He's always, even though how good he is, you know, you think there's not much more he can learn, and he's he's always striving to, to for that perfection. You know, so um, yeah, you, you never stop learning in this game. I think there's always things that you think you can learn that. So. Um, yeah, but like you say, great experience, and it's it's just a massive learning curve when you're that age. It's all about getting that experience and mm. keep building on it, and hopefully one day it turns around and you actually win something. Mm. Well, things sort of turned around for you. 2012, you won the shootout. Now, obviously, mm. I mean, it's become a rank event, but then yeah. it was kind of a novelty, sort of yeah. bash up, really. But 
it's still a very nervy event. Oh, yeah. And the fact that you won a trophy on television in that environment, that seemed to sort of kickstart your career. Yeah, it's funny enough. Yeah, it, it did actually. I know it's funny as, as mad as it sounds. It's not it's like one frame. It's but like to say, being live on TV, in front of a big audience, quite a raucous audience mm. actually, and um, yeah, and a lot of pressure. Everybody's twitching, you know. Everyone's <laughs> one frame shot clock, so you have got quite a lot to deal with. Mm. Um, yeah, I want classes. Obviously, now it's a ranking event. I want classes a ranking event. I don't think no one does, but um, yeah, it was a big deal for me back then because I at the time obviously I was I was just hovering around the thirty-two mark, the twenty mark. I, I, I think I might have been in a 16 once by then um, but yeah I wasn't really setting the world alight and yeah at the time lack of confidence I had mm. so like a win like that picking up any trophy I suppose to give me it did give me a lot of confidence yeah and then you started the next season you won your first ranked event the Australian mm. Open what are your memories of that I was out in, the, in Bendigo yeah well, I was back <coughs> out, I think I'd been away for three or four weeks at the time I was on, on the back of like the six reds in Thailand a tournament in China um, so I was on the road with Mark Davis most of the time which is quite unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, no, he's a good lad, yeah, but he, everyone knows how nice a fellow he is, yeah, but uh, he can be quite miserable sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah, no, um, yeah, we, I remember being with him the whole time, and um, he had had a great time. He'd been to the semis of, the, of China, and then he, he won the sixth thread, so he was flying at the time, and um, he actually, actually beat him in the semis of the Australian. So um, he had a great three or four weeks, really, and, uh, yeah, I can remember playing Peter Ebden in the final, and... Uh, I played great, I think, if I remember rightly. And, yeah, I remember potting the Brown to win it and obviously showed a bit of emotion because, yeah, it's just, it, was, it was a ranking tournament at the end of the day and, yeah, in front of TV and crowd there, yeah, it was a great feeling, yeah. Yeah, and he's gone into the match, obviously, with all the experience, you know, world champion, yeah. won a lot of tournaments. It's your first big final. Do you remember being nervous? Because you didn't seem to look it. No, like, like, I was like, nervous, but mm. I just, for some reason, I, yeah, it was just one of them days where, yeah, everything just clicked, really. And, you know, I... I I'd obviously been working. I think I've been working with Terry um, on the, on a mind sort of thing, really. And uh, yeah, I just felt calm and thing, p- things were going right for me, and I was scoring well, and I felt confident. And it was just one of them games where everything just went well for me. You know? mm-hmm. Talk about Terry then, because obviously he's been world champion and, and a great player himself. Moving over to the coaching side, you don't always necessarily need to be a, a great player to be a good coach, but. He does have that experience to call on, but I get the sense just talking to players, it's also about just the right word at the right time. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been working with Terry this season. Mm. Um, decided to have just a year on my own, on my own. You know, there's no there's no reason why I won't go back and work with him next year. But for the, for the past six or seven years, I've been working with him. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. He, I think the first first couple of years, we was always working on stuff, changed a couple of tiny little technical things, nothing major really. Um, but yeah. He, he just seems because he's been there and done it people believe what he says his other coaches haven't had that experience and they're pretending they know what they're talking about but deep down really they haven't got a clue um, but Terry's obviously been there he knows exactly how you're feeling um, and sometimes you go back in the dressing room you wouldn't even talk about the game because everything's going well so there's nothing to talk about you just talk about completely something random and just make you laugh and make you relax you know so um, yeah he's always he's always great to have in your corner mm. OK well that, that season where you won the Australian Open you actually played more matches than anyone else on the circuit and of course it ended mm. with the biggest match of them all you got to the world final mm. against Ronnie O'Sullivan now talk about the big time I mean that's about <laughs> as big as it gets right yeah that was amazing um, I think I played the big ding Selby and I, th- I mean I think Selby was still struggling with his neck at the, mm. or was he struggling with his neck at the time I can't remember anyway but yeah um, yeah I remember having, like such a galling game against Ricky yeah. and it was not a very good game either I don't think I had a break over 50 until it went really late on in the match mm. and I was 12-8 down and all of a sudden I managed to find a bit of form and Ricky fell away a little bit and I was 16-12 up and then I remember putting the, the cash balls really to to realise I was in the final I was like it was unbelievable really it was a yeah, dream come true and um, yeah the best feeling I've ever had walking out as a professional coming down for that final session against mm. Ronnie because I think we had, a, we had a great game really and um, I think a lot of people was expecting me just to fall away and he'd win with a session to spare and everything but I think I put him under quite a bit of pressure and he played he, I think he's even admitted I don't think he's, he's played as well there you know mm. but what's it like playing in the final because like you mentioned the Jimmy White finals mm. and you've grown oh, yeah. up watching every every snooker fan can remember all the world finals mm. they've watched suddenly you're there you know they've got the trophy out you're standing yeah. for the pictures what, what's that it's like it's surreal yeah. it's surreal really you don't actually I think when you're actually in, at Sheffield and you're there working 
it's weird. It don't, you don't seem to appreciate what's going on. Sure. I think you're just there, just concentrating, mm-hmm. playing another game, another game. There's so many sessions, just like non-stop, non-stop. You just feel like you're not, not out of your suit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, standing there, it, I, I went to afterwards. I look back now, and I look at the pictures, and it brings back the memories, you know. And I think, mm-hmm. Jesus, you actually, you actually <laughs> played in the in the world final. You know, mm-hmm. not many people can say that. Obviously, I'd have loved it if I'd if I'd have won it, but. Um, yeah, it's still a massive achievement. And I'll always look back with like unbelievable memories. Yeah. Mm. And it must have helped give you the belief that you know you are a top player. Mm. You've been you were sort of knocking on the door. You were steadily rising. Obviously, won a ranking event that season, but to play in a world final, you know, that's not a fluke. And we, you know, no. obviously, since then your record that there has been really good. Yeah, must have really helped with your confidence. Oh, massively. Yeah, give me the give me um yeah massive self belief. Um, well, I wouldn't say massive because I'm not that type of person mm. who. You know, I'm always, I'll always doubt myself. I'm always quite critical of myself. You know, I, I never get too too excited about things. But yeah, obviously deep down, I know I can do it. That's mm. that's the big big thing, really. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure how I've done the following season. Um, maybe I let off, took my foot off the brake after after gas a little bit. Maybe mm. I can't remember. But yeah, you know, deep down, it give me give me the confidence and it, it actually cemented the fact that I can do it on the bigger stage. Yeah. Mm. Quite often we're here people say about you you know you're underrated which, mm. which you shouldn't be but is that a good thing, good thing in a way you can sort of maybe keep your head down yeah. leave some of the other star names to sort of take the limelight yeah I do. <coughs> people say things that I don't really take much notice um, I'm not really interested in trying to make headlines and trying to say things just to get myself noticed and things like that you know I'll just go there turn up play um, I'm there to play snooker and I'm there to try and win win a tournament really if I can if I can change people's minds, you know, and I mean, I don't think people doubt me. I think people class me as a top player, really. I think, but I'm not. I don't really care what people think. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going there to play snooker, and if they think I'm a good player, then great. And if mm. not, I stand to them, really. But um, yeah, it's just I don't really take much notice. Sure. Okay. Well, you, you won uh, the players' championship, and then 2017, the World Grand Prix, and that was. Um, you must have been really happy with that performance oh, against yeah. Ryan Day. You know, five centuries. I know he came back at you a little bit at the end, but yeah. you've sort of done all the all the work early on. Yeah, that's um, one of them moments where one of them rare occasions where you don't actually feel like you're going to miss, and to do feel like that in a final mm. against a class player like Ryan, you know, so dangerous. Um, yeah, that was a that was a great feeling. I remember walking around the town and I was maybe six, seven, three up, and I was clearing up, and I was thinking, Jesus, this is probably the best I've felt in mm. in a long time, and um, that don't happen very often. Every snooker player will tell you. Um, but like I say, he did come back at me, and uh, I managed to make a decent little, little clearance at the end under under a lot of pressure. And um, yeah, that's a really proud moment because I know I won the Australian, and I know but that tournament was, uh, was a big tournament. And everybody was in it, you sure. know, like Ronnie, the whole the whole lot was in it. So um, to win that one was um, yeah, special, really. Yeah, and because like any player, you don't just want to be consistent; you want to be winning trophies. Yeah, you want to win. Yeah, um, not one not one one since, but I've come close, very close, quite a few times, but. Um, yeah, that's um, that goes back a long way. Got a lot of history that tournament, mm. so uh, yeah, delighted to have won that. Yeah. You also got to the Masters final, I think, three years ago now, and mm. again, Ronnie O'Sullivan, <laughs> and, and that's kind of that is sort of his manner, isn't it? The oh, Ali Yeah, I've, I actually felt demoralised that final. <laughs> I did, I, that's one of the occasions where I did feel a bit embarrassed. You know, I, I, when it went seven-one, I think I was actually thinking, just finish me off now. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. no way back from there. Yeah. So. Um, and then he flew to pink, I think, to go eight one. Or it might have been to go seven one. And I just thought, right, yeah, just just bash me up now, please don't miss. It was one of the occasions where you don't actually want to come back to the table, um, which is terrible, really, because you're um, in a massive final. Um, but he can make you feel like that, and the place can make you feel like that as well, you know. So, um, but yeah, I played well. I played very well to get to the final, and uh, yeah, another another great occasion, but obviously not a, a great great performance. Mm. <laughs> Well, the Crucible seems to be where you kind of every year you're there in the other one table, and, and you obviously have to beat great players to do it. Yeah. Now, why is that? Do you think is it the venue? Is it the longer matches, or you, do you just feel comfortable there? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't necessarily turn up there and think, right, I've got a great chance of getting mm-hmm. through it because I've been done well in the last few years. I just turn up there the same every year, you know, mm-hmm. um, hoping to get through the first round, and then it just some, the way it's happened in the last few years it's just unfolded from there, and I think. I think yeah, last year actually, I felt actually felt like I could win this, mm. and that's the first time really. I'm, even when I've got to the semis before, you know, I know how long the matches are, and I know the great players in front of me. But I did feel good, you know, and I was playing some decent stuff up until about fifteen, thirteen against Mark, and the wheels completely fell off. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's no, I don't really turn up every year thinking, well, I'm gonna have a good run here. It's just, it's just the way it's worked out the last few years, and 
but like you say, I do feel do feel quite comfortable there. Strange. Um, well, that's the, the biggest pressure any single player plays under, and uh, for some reason it just seems to bring the best out of me. Well, it has done for last year. There's no reason I'm going to run this year. Mm. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about last year. I mean, was the sort of regret um, afterwards because, like you say, you were sort of in front against Mark, yeah. and then at the end it got very nervous, didn't it? Oh, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it must have been great to watch because we couldn't stand up yeah. a pair of us in the end, and then Mark. I remember, I remember missing the pink in the middle, and I played complete wrong shot. I got to screw it down for red on the black round. I'm, I'm trying to stun it off the cushion because I didn't fancy getting through the white. I remember, and I, he nudged me on the shoulder, and we just started laughing. He said, "Oh, we're both twitching all over the place now." And uh, yeah, well, but I think looking back at it, there really, I probably should have just just tried to stay focused a little bit more. But then I just started getting a little. Yeah, it was strange, really, and um, try to be a little bit more ruthless, really, maybe. Um, but how hard is but it? It's so hard when you're out there. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's always good in hindsight, and you can mm. always look back and oh, I should have done this, should have done this. But at the time, we was um, yeah, we was both struggling to string two balls together. I think. Sure. Um, but yeah, like I say, it was, I was gutted afterwards, definitely, because it was a great chance to get to another final. Mm. You know, yeah, give me give me yourself a, a crack at the top. Mm. How hard is it though? I know I've asked you about it now, but how yeah. hard is it not to look back on it? Like certainly in the days afterwards, when mm. you sat at home and you think, if only I'd have done this. Yeah. Can you, are you a player that can sort of let that stuff go, or, or occasion like that? Is it difficult? Yeah. yeah no, I'm not too bad now. I don't beat myself up like mm. I used to. No way near. Um, but you know, I've been close quite a number of times now. You know, it's first couple of times you think, oh, that was a good tournament. Mm. That was a good tournament. But once you get there now, like the last few times. you you don't want to keep getting beat in, in them stages. You want to go on to win it. You know, mm-hmm. you want to be, you want to win a tournament, um, especially a tournament like that. So um, yeah, I did. It did. It did hurt for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you got to bounce back. It's the way it is. But uh, yeah, I don't. When I get to semis or something like that, you're devastated. Now it's not. Whereas years ago, I'd get there and I think, oh, I've had a great tournament there, but it's not like that now. Mm-hmm. When you get through that far, you want to. It's all about you want to win, then, especially at this stage of my career. Mm. Well, the Masters, of course, is the, the big event coming mm. up uh, this week. Um, I think you've got Sean Murphy yeah. first round. Uh, I suppose there, though, it doesn't really matter who you play, does no. it? Because they're all top players. Oh, they're all great players. Murphy's won it, he's won a triple crown, world champion. So, um, yeah, I played him there a few years ago and managed mm. to beat him then, but, you know, different day, different game, and um, it looks like he's coming into a bit of form again. He's probably he had a big move a while back, he went to move to Ireland, and he's mm. so. He's probably settled down a bit now. It takes a little while to settle down. He's been putting the hours in, and he's he's played very well the last last month or so. Even in the qualifiers, I think he had about seven or eight centuries in yeah. these two matches. So, um, yeah, he'd have been putting the work in over Christmas, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, like you say, it, it doesn't matter who you've got there. You know what you've got to do. You've got to go out there and, and, and play well yourself. And if you can do that, then you're tough to beat, man. Mm. Turned 40 this year, but that means nothing really in snooker, does it? We've no. seen a lot of 40-somethings actually really doing well yeah. um, how do you sort of see your the next few years for you is it is it a question of trying to land a few more trophies yeah I think yeah it'd be nice to win another well another it'd be nice to win another tournament at the moment I'm, I'm one one for a while but um, yeah I want to just try and um, yeah just keep trying to tr- trying to play well and well, keep, keep improving really I think yeah. I've got quite a number of years left if I can stay stay dedicated I think with me I think if I can stay motivated that's a big thing because I get a bit down with the travelling and that sometimes I've been better the last few years the last couple of years I should say but um, I think sometimes I, I get a bit I get a bit depressed really you know yeah. knowing, knowing that I've got to go away for quite yeah. for two or three weeks at time especially like China and that you know I get a bit homesick I suppose like some other players but um, I've dealt with that better lately and uh, yeah if I can keep enjoying playing and, and keep doing alright then I think yeah, I think I've got a few years left of me because mm. that's the thing you mentioned the travelling a I minute mean, yeah. kind of it sort of sounds glamorous, but it isn't, is no. it? You know, it's airport, on the plane, another airport, mm. bus to the hotel, mm. and then you're working. You're not actually on holiday. No, and then you're jet-lagged as well, mm. and then you, you feel rubbish about yourself, you're sleeping rubbish. It takes a good week, you know, when you actually get to China to yeah. get over that. And um, sometimes you're only there, you're there for like two, three days, and then you've got a plane. And especially if you get the half-nine shift in the morning, you and you can't get to sleep till six in the morning when you're jet-lagged. So you're trying to play snook and you... Your eyes are stinging, and you think, "Oh, what am I doing here?" Mm. So, um, yeah, I've been trying to get to China a bit earlier, you know, so I yeah. start getting some more sleeping, and um, I think that's helped me really. I think I've been getting over the jet lag a bit better. So, um, yeah, I mean, Ronnie's got it right, but he, he's in a privileged position where he can actually pick and choose not to go. So, um, sure. for us boys, it's um, it's such a big event; you don't want to really miss it. Sure. Mm. And finally, just set one thing, Barry, because I've heard it said about you a lot of times. You played the kettle drum in a steel band. Is this true? The kettle, no, the cello, it was called. Okay, the, the cello. cello. Yeah, it was cello like, drum. Yeah, it's a cello, it's called. Okay. Yeah, and um, 
I think the front was tenors, then the, there was seconds, the second row, which was like two drums, and yeah. I played the cello where there was three drum, three drums around me, you know, and a steel band, and then bass was behind me. So yeah, um, yeah we done weddings and everything, played right. at yacht clubs, and yeah, it was really good at secondary school. Yeah, I've, I've actually got some footage at home, so um, oh, wow. I can <laughs> dig it out somewhere. It's yeah. quite interesting. Right. <laughs> and, that, and was that just? How did you get into that? Just, just at school, no, yeah. just at school, secondary school, mm. and just in the music club. Really, I got friendly with a few boys at the club, and they. They used to go at the weekends in at Tobacco Dock in Wapping. Mm. Uh, we used to play in a shopping centre. We used to have a, like a lock up there, and every weekend on Saturdays and maybe some Sunday sometimes we um, we used to play in a big shopping centre and people all be oh. all around watching and that and we play all classical music, you know, like Blue Danube and oh. all smoke gets in your eyes and all that sort of stuff. Oh. I thought we was very good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, when we haven't got a set here, but if, but, no. if, but if someone wheeled them in, could you pick it up again? Oh, you think? No, I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember slightly, but nothing. I don't think I'll be able to. I used to be able to play the, the tenors as well and do do a few things, but no, it was such a long time. Oh, 39, that was only 14 or so yeah. at the time, so yeah, I, I doubt it now. Okay, well, you're busy enough playing snooker. Yeah, thanks. exactly, yeah. It's been yeah. great to talk to you, Barry. Thanks Cheers. a lot. Oh, thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.